0: Hi friends, it has been a month since I've had you all to myself. I've been away and I hope you enjoyed the four interviews I dropped for you last month. If you didn't hear them, you may want to scroll back. Health Byte downloads doubled last month, so I guess the interviews were a hit. I'm hoping you're enjoying your summer. My family and I spent three weeks, almost three weeks, away in Spain and Portugal, and it was really lovely. But you know what? It's almost more lovely to be back home. You know what I mean? Like, it's great to get away. But when you come home, you're like, God bless America or wherever you're from. And you kiss your bed and your own pillow in gratitude. I literally kissed my pillow. So before I went, I dropped an episode on travel tips. The episode was called Food, Fun and Freedom from Fear of Eating, Reclaiming Joy in Vacation without obsessing about food or ruining your diet. An unfortunately long title, but some really good tips on how to manage your food while you're on vacation, and more importantly, really good tips on mindset for when you return. Tips that I'm using right now to get myself back on track. So if you were away this summer and like me, indulged a little bit too much, and like me, are finding it hard to find your mojo, then go back and listen to this episode. We'll link it in the show notes. Okay, but here's a recap of some of the interesting food and nutrition headlines in the news. Welcome back to Health Bite, the podcast for small actionable bites towards healthy living. I believe your relationship with food is a window into your relationship with yourself. In this podcast, we will explore how to redefine this relationship so you can not only achieve your weight loss goals, but greater mental, emotional, and physical well-being. In the end, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Udim, and I'm excited to share with you this week's bite. So an interesting news headline came out on CNN this past week about semaglutide, the drug also known as Wegovy and Ozempic, and similar drugs like Manjaro. As we've discussed in this podcast many times, these drugs mimic a normal gut hormone that we release when we consume food, which primarily signals fullness and satiety to the brain. What you may not know though, is that this drug also works by slowing down gut motility or transit, resulting in food hanging out in the gut longer and enhancing that feeling of fullness or satiety. This is likely responsible for the common side effects of nausea, vomiting, gas, reflux, and these are known and expected. But now there are reports of the potential side effect of gastroparesis, which is a weakening of the gut, impairing the gut's ability to effectively pass food through to the intestine. Now, remember, some degree of impaired gastric motility is is expected. This is what the drug does. It slows down the movement of food. But what's concerning here is that there seems to be some cases of severe gastric delay that is significant and in some cases may continue despite and after coming off the drug now here are some caveats first that these adverse events have not been fully studied rigorously or diagnosed appropriately These are reported and not investigated. So it's up to the discloser to kind of guesstimate what is going on and to attribute whether this is actually due to the drug or not, which is important because gastroparesis is a known complication of diabetes, where elevated blood sugars will impair nerve function all over the body, including the gut. And remember that these drugs were approved for diabetes first. So maybe we're picking up an occurrence that is not related to the medication, but to the population that would have experienced the side effect anyway, or was at risk for the side effect anyway. And finally, at this point, this potential adverse effect appears to be rare. So it's not happening all the time. It is in isolated cases. Not to say that this should be dismissed. As I've always said, these medications are highly effective and everything comes at a cost, a cost that we may not fully understand because some adverse effects are so rare that they're not going to come to light until we have many, many people taking a drug And when we do, we start to uncover those more rare events that were not identified in the early years when the experience with the medication was less. So if you're on these drugs, what should you do? First of all, there's no need to panic. I want you to speak with your doctor, share your concerns and decide together what should be done. In the end, it's a weighing of the risks to the benefits. If you're taking this medication off label and are not considered a candidate for anti-obesity drugs, like maybe you gained 10 pounds during the pandemic like I did and you asked for this drug to help you manage 10, 15 pounds of excess weight, consider if it's worth the potential risks. However, If you're 30 pounds, 50 pounds or 100 pounds overweight, if you've been battling excess weight all of your life, if excess weight is affecting your mental health, your physical health, your quality of life, then perhaps you're willing to accept some degree of risk, some degree of potential adverse effect or side effect in order to achieve the weight loss and all the benefits that come along with it. There's no one size fits all answer. And please remember that even though I am a physician, I'm not your physician. So use this information for informational purposes and talk to your doctor. As an aside though, a related aside, the American Society of Anesthesiologists put out a consensus guidelines just this past week stating that patients who are on these drugs should hold their medications prior to scheduled surgery. Now, this was in response to reports that people who were on these medications still had food in their stomachs when they presented for a surgery or for a procedure long after what was expected. And because their stomach was still full, and if you've ever had a surgery or procedure, you know that They ask you to not eat after midnight or not eat after a certain period of time, because when you're under anesthesia, you are at risk for aspiration or regurgitation of whatever contents are left in your stomach, a serious complication that can result in pneumonia and even death. In fact, a patient of mine who's on Wegovi and who allowed me to disclose this information on my social media channels and podcasts, shared with me that she actually had to reschedule an elective colonoscopy because of this very thing. Despite going through the whole prep and the rigmarole, and if you've ever gone through a colonoscopy, you know it's a rigmarole, they found contents that were still in the GI tract and therefore had to reschedule. So as a response to these reports, the anesthesiologists put together this Guideline or suggestion. It's not a guideline yet because the evidence is still limited, but a suggestion that individuals who have patient uh, who have procedures or surgeries scheduled should hold their medications one week prior to the procedure. And if they're on a daily form of this drug like liraglutide to hold their medication the day of, it may be that some individuals may need to hold it for longer. So again, talk to your physician and take note of this potential circumstance. Okay, up next, what to make of aspartame. So while I was in Spain, literally eating a chocolate crepe made from pure chocolate made from pure cane sugar, the WHO declared aspartame a sugar substitute as quote, possibly carcinogenic to humans. But guidelines regarding the use of aspartame remain unchanged and the FDA has not banned it. And so it remains in thousands of food items, drinks, gum, yogurt, snacks, you name it. So what gives? What are we supposed to do with this information? So here's the background. There is an agency that is affiliated with the WHO, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, who reviewed old research and showed a possible link between aspartame and liver cancer. Now remember that aspartame is very widely studied. In fact, it's one of the most studied food additives and it has been deemed to be safe within a specific range of up to 40 milligrams a day, which is actually quite a lot. So I don't think we need to freak out and purge everything in our pantry and make this Puritan vow to never ever consume a speck of aspartame for as long as we shall live. But I do think that to just discredit this news, is wrong as well, because there is mounting evidence that artificial sweeteners, in general, cause more harm than once thought. Just a few months ago, I reported on Health Byte that another sweetener called erythritol is actually a natural sugar alternative, was associated with an increased incidence of MACE or major cardiac adverse events like heart attacks, etc. And there have been a ton, I mean, a ton of reports that have linked processed and ultra processed foods, which contain artificial sugars in some cases, and many different kinds of additives in general, and have linked them with diseases like cancers, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease. Now, an association is not causation, as some will say. What that means is, for example, just because the sun rises every morning and I drink coffee every morning, doesn't mean that the sun causes me to drink coffee. These two things, the sun rising and my coffee drinking, are both associated with mornings. They happen together, not because they cause one another but because they happen together. And so it may be that some of these associations that are being noted is the same. There are other factors that are making these two things have a relationship to each other that is not causation.
1: Hi friends, it's Dr. Adrian, and I'm dropping into your podcast to offer a love letter to you. I believe that our hunger represents our unmet emotional and spiritual needs. And by leaning in and listening to our hunger, we have an opportunity to hear our needs and to respond. I know this not only from personal experience, but from listening to the stories of hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the past almost 20 years. I have compiled these stories, including my own, into Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. This book is not just about weight loss, but about life and contains lessons that I know to be life-changing. If you don't believe me, head over to my website at dradrianudim.com, where you can obtain a free sample or to amazon.com and check out the reviews for yourself.
0: But here's my take. As more and more of this evidence comes out, As more damning associations are reported, we need to take notice of the potential harm and the possibility that we are coming to know that the substances we once believed to be harmless can potentially cause harm, especially when we're consuming lots of them and consuming them regularly. Long gone are the days when we can lull ourselves into bottomless sugar-free snacks and sodas just because they are sugar-free, thinking that we are immune to any consequence. As I just said, everything has a cost and there is no magic. How should you use this news? I, for one, gave up my diet coke habit years ago. And I am mindful of potential sources of artificial sweeteners and things like sugar-free yogurt, which I used to consume on the regular. I'm opting instead to have smaller quantities of real-deal dessert, like my crepe, or none at all. I drink water instead of artificial sweetened drinks. So I'm taking this news More to fuel the notion that we need to reform our reliance on what is artificial, including artificial sweeteners, and also on processed and ultra-processed foods as a whole. I hope that makes sense. Now, more bad news for canned drinks, because in the same week that the WHO weighed in on aspartame... Canada cracked down on six brands of energy drinks that had above the legal limit of caffeine set by the country, which in Canada is set to be 180 milligrams per can. In the company's defense, these drinks were illegally imported into the country and sold without agency approvals and according to the brands without the company's knowing in some cases. But that made me think, if our drinks that are on our shelves here in America are banned in Canada, what does that say about our legal limits? So I did a little research and learned that the FDA limit is 400 milligrams, 400. That is like four to five cups of coffee. And think about it. Is that really okay? I mean, one would think that it's okay because it's on our shelves, right? But the truth is that it is not okay, particularly because there are no, from what I understand, warnings or limits on on how to consume these drinks. And often these drinks are consumed by kids and teens. Case in point, my just-turned-16-year-old, used to drink these drinks before he went to work out until finally he quit when I wouldn't stop nagging him to death. But this is a thing, right? We have access to these drinks on the shelf and they are often or sometimes consumed in multiples and with legal limits that are far beyond what is known or deemed to be safe in other countries. That could be a concern. Now, to be fair, most energy drinks don't have 400 milligrams of caffeine in them. For example, Red Bull has 80 uh, milligrams, while Celsius, another popular brand, has 200 milligrams, as do most energy shots. So theoretically, you're drinking like two cups of coffee per can. But still, that's kind of a lot. And if you are consuming multiples, as some people are, then know that downing these drinks like there is no tomorrow carries consequences. So I want to remind you, just because you see something on the shelf, particularly an American shelf, does not mean that it is of no consequence. Now, I wanna talk to you about something that has been in the background for some time, which I find baffling, but I've never discussed. And that is cultivated meat. Cultivated meat, also called cultured or cell-based meat. Have you guys ever heard of this? Basically, they take genetic material from real animal cells and then manipulate and grow them in the laboratory to make meat. Just last April, a company called Vow used publicly available genetic information from the mammoth and then filled missing parts with genetic data from, I guess, what's its closest living relative, the African elephant, and inserted this DNA material into a sheep cell and allowed it to multiply in a lab until there was enough of the stuff to roll up and put in a meatball that they then put for viewing at a museum in Amsterdam. Wow. Now call me old fashioned, but this sounds absolutely gross to me. (laughs) Now Val did not create this concoction for public consumption, but there are several of these in the works. In fact, late last month, the USDA gave the green light to three different California-based companies to begin producing and selling lab-grown chicken in the U.S. And last November, they opened the door to lab-grown meat, making it safe for consumption. The launch of these meat alternatives, by the way, is not far away. There are already companies that are close to launch in the United States and have already coordinated with premier chefs like Jose Andres to serve these meat-like products in their upscale restaurants. And believe it or not, these products are already available in other countries like Singapore since 2020. And if that weren't sci fi enough, last year an Israeli company unveiled the first 3D printed ribeye steak. Now, when I think of a 3D printer, I think about the toy that my child plays with in the garage. But basically, this technology takes living animal cells that are incubated and grown in a plant based matrix in the lab. They give them the nutrition that they need to differentiate and to achieve the texture and quality of a real steak and multiply it via 3D printing. And the final product, it's like animal-like. It has the animal's own circulatory system, which allows the cells to mature like a real cow, wowzers! And last but not least, seafood seems to be not so far behind because apparently there's a San Diego-based company in the works um, making a cell-based seafood product as well. Now there are proponents that are gonna rightfully or do rightfully argue that we need sustainable alternatives to support our love of meat and our reliance on protein. But is this a viable option? I don't know. My old school ways have been challenged before, but I just don't know. So something to keep in mind because certainly these um, meat alternatives cultivated or cell-based chicken, fish, and seafood is in the pipeline. Last but not least, I want to leave the realm of sci-fi and leave you with an actionable bite because researchers from the University of Hamilton in Ontario showed that six protective foods, higher intake of six foods or food groups, reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, and all-cause mortality over the nine years that individuals were studied. Now, what's important, I think, is that this scoring system didn't ban any foods. So usually when we talk about heart disease, we talk about red meat, for example, but they didn't say don't eat red meat. They didn't even include that in their scoring system. The scoring system just incorporated the presence of these six protective foods. So what were they? The six food groups in this study and it was called the pure p-u-r-e scoring system by the way were these fruits vegetables nuts dairy legumes and fish and here's what they advised vegetables should be consumed at two to three servings per day that means cups fruit also two to three servings a day now a lot of my patients always ask Is it okay to eat fruit? Yes, it's not only okay to eat with fruit, but you should be consuming two to three servings daily. Third, they suggested one serving of nuts per day. And a serving is like one third of a cup. It's not a ton, so keep that in mind. It adds up quick. Next, two servings a day of dairy. Whole fat dairy, by the way. Yes, that is whole fat. Next, three to four servings of legumes per week. Legumes are things like beans, peas, lentils. And finally, two to three servings of fish per week. So people who got five out of six of these categories reduce their risk of the all-cause mortality, cardiac events, including heart attack, stroke, by up to 30% over the course of nine years as compared to those who did not consume. So rewind and take note of the list and the serving sizes again. If you're not getting it in, then make a mindful attempt to incorporate these food groups in the amounts that are suggested. And guess what? Your body will respond, really. Isn't our body so kind and forgiving? Well, that's all for this week. I know there's a lot of news out there, but let's face it. We all have limited attention spans, so I've left you with my top picks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you love Health Bite, can you share it with someone that you love? Seriously, I get such a dopamine high when I see our numbers go up. I love sharing the nerdy science to help you live well, and just imagine those of you who are taking some of these words to heart and getting benefit gives me joy. So take good care, and I look forward to seeing you again next week on Health Bite. Until then, bye now.